1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting
0: changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we're going to start with a quote from biographer Simon Dixon, only the most accomplished of actresses could have carried off the part of the Virgin Queen when all present knew her as an adulteress and as a usurper, and many suspected her of regicide to boot. The woman we're talking about is Catherine the Great, and when we left you in our last episode, she had just deposed Peter the Third and possibly had him murdered. And her bejeweled crown, she is now empress of all the Russias and convinced that it is her God-given destiny to rule. And Catherine is an idealistic woman. She wants to westernize Russia
0: and she wants to emancipate the serfs and give people opportunities to receive education and apply all these ideals of the Enlightenment that she holds so dear. But in the end, she betrays a lot of these principles that she swears to live by. So, Was she great ultimately? We'll leave that up to you. We can't possibly fit all of her life into only three podcasts. We'd probably need about 30 episodes at least. So, we're going to give you an overview of her rule and just hit upon some of
2: the most important parts, some of the most interesting parts of her life. So, the situation in Russia when she takes the throne isn't fantastic. They need money, they're totally broke. The government is corrupt, the prisons are full, and the legal system makes absolutely no sense. A lot of these very archaic rules from the 1600s, it's impossible to navigate. And Russia was considered backward by the rest of the world. Catherine wanted to change that and and make her country a cultivated place. She's such a cultivated woman. Exactly. The place that has great cities and great art and an admired government, something that can stand proudly alongside the other powers of Europe. So where do you start if you're trying to radically change your country? You start with administrative matters.
0: So first things first... Catherine is a hands-on kind of ruler, so she investigates the Senate, she sits in on meetings, and she insists on being briefed on everything that's going on, and she gets on people when they're not quick not with their replies. Uh, she's not what they're used to. This is not how
2: government is supposed to be, in their opinion. And in her investigation, she realizes that things are a mess. She was asking about Russian towns, and her senators had no idea where they were. And then she realized they didn't even have a map of Russia. And a lot of these details are from Virginia Rounding's biography of Catherine the Great, we should add. So she has this huge empire, one that could be powerful, but it's not being run well. The people within the machinery don't even understand it, much less outsiders And if she wants to turn Russia around, this is the first thing she has to tackle, this administrative aspect. And she does. She gets the right people in the right positions, even if they supported the previous ruler, even though I think it was the tendency to sack all the people who'd been there before. Exactly. And she institutes accountability. She also draws up what's called the great instruction and presents it to a legislative commission that she had put together. Their job was to come up with ways to fix Russia's legal system. And her instruction, which was clearly informed by her Enlightenment reading, is impressive. Voltaire thought so, at least. There are 655 articles, and they're all of her ideals laid out, but they're considered too progressive. They're refused. Too
0: progressive even for France, let too alone Too liberal. liberal, they wouldn't publish Russia. it. <laughs> so these are thrown out, and it's a blow to Catherine. You can imagine she's put so much effort into this huge... Project early in her reign, and it's thrown out the door without a second thought. But she has her ideals of what the Russian people could be, and she can't quite get them into play. She has dreams of establishing a school, kind of like Saint-Cyr, which is the one we mentioned in the Madame Maintenon podcast. Yeah, to to educate young women. And um, we mentioned when we were introducing the podcast that she was advocating emancipating the serfs, even though being a woman who would think things through, she knew that this couldn't happen immediately. If you say all the serfs are free, chaos. Chaos. So she realizes that it'll take a while. She's hoping that it's something that'll happen
2: over the next hundred years or so. Because her belief about law is that in order to introduce laws, first you have to feel out the sentiments of your people. Which is a wise idea. (laughs) Pretty much exactly what Peter III did not do. But this would prove to be to the detriment of the serfs later in her rule. But Onward and upward and outward, let's talk foreign affairs. So the first of these big foreign affairs is the Russo-Turkish
0: War. But before we get into that, a little background. Catherine gets a big chance to extend Russia's power in 1763 when the king of Poland dies. Catherine has the perfect replacement for these Lucky guys. You, yeah. Her former lover, Poniatowski. And her diplomats managed to threaten the Polish government into accepting this guy as their new king. He becomes Stanislaus II Augustus and is elected. So it doesn't last for that long, though, because in 1768, we have rebellions in
2: Poland. And since Catherine has installed Poniatowski there, she has a vested interest in what's going on. In keeping him there. Exactly. (laughs) And she sends in troops. So France gets involved and is like, how can you let this happen, Turkey? You should probably get on this. And then the Cossacks were causing murderous trouble in Turkey at the same time. We have all the ingredients for war. And this is just one of the Russo-Turkish wars to clarify. They began much earlier and they would continue for many years. But in this particular bout, Russia crushes its enemy. There's this decisive battle at Chesney in 1770, which brightened the spirits of the Russian people considerably, many of whom suspected they would never see their conscripted men again. But glory on the battlefield isn't everything because disaster
0: strikes in the form of plague. And it originated in Turkey, but the Russian government didn't understand its severity. And they underestimated it for sure. Certain cities are quarantined, but the plague spreads. And soon we have hundreds of people in Moscow dying every day. Their bodies are in the streets, and those who are still alive are rioting. And in the frenzy, the archbishop is even killed. It's finally Catherine's lover, Grigory Orlov, who saves the day. He arrives in Moscow, organizes food and clothing drives, takes precaution against the spread of disease, burning down old houses, keeping the couriers away because they
2: would obviously be spreading Carriers, it yeah. in the city, and fumigates the city too. But then the snow came and the cold seemed to put a stop to the epidemic where he could not, but not before it killed 120,000 people in Russia. Shortly after this, Catherine considered peace with Turkey and a treaty was signed. But as we mentioned, it didn't end the series of wars. Another began in 1787 and continued almost until her death. But by the end of all of these, the Black Sea was opened up to the Russian fleet. Catherine's taken over the Crimean Peninsula and most of the Ukraine and Poland has been divided between Russia, Prussia and Austria. So they've got this big foothold in the Mediterranean and also a chance against the Ottoman Empire.
0: Yeah, Russia expands over 200,000 miles during Catherine's reign, ultimately. But picking up with Crimea, once Catherine has annexed Crimea, which which comes during that second war, the 1787 to 1792 one, she wants to inspect this new place she owns. So she resolves to visit, but... Does so in style, of course. And her Crimean voyage was famously compared to Cleopatra's fleet.
2: So that's going to give you a good idea of what this is like. Her entourage left in January 1787, and her own coach was like a house, again, according to Rounding. It had its own bedroom, a sitting room, a library – 30 horses had to pull it, and they're, double were many, wide. <laughs> <laughs> but a classy one, Sarah. There are several of these for all of the people in her entourage, so picture this procession of sable hats and sleighs.
0: And they make their sea journey from Kiev in April on this impressive fleet of galleys and barges and munitions boats, and This is where a famous myth about
2: Catherine comes in, the Potemkin villages. And Potemkin was one of her lovers, but also her right-hand man in her government, basically this all-powerful minister. He'll come up in the next episode And the myth is that he built these Potemkin villages, which were just fake storefronts, basically. Think of like a Hollywood set to make Russia look more developed and prosperous than it actually was as people went by. Uh, But Rounding's biography says that perhaps this was a misunderstanding, because as this grand procession passes the towns, the very excited citizens put up triumphal arches and other decorations, and maybe it was misinterpreted.
0: I think we've talked about that in almost every monarch episode we've done. When the monarch goes on the grand tour, people build a bunch of temporary structures to be
2: impressive and impress their king or queen. And this was an exceptionally lavish journey. In one place they landed, Potemkin had an English garden created for the Empress in a matter of days. And she found her place very charming. But the contrast of this journey to conditions in Russia is stark, where they were suffering from a food shortage and general unrest.
0: So general unrest, of course, leads to conspiracies. And we have Many afoot throughout Catherine's reign, but we also have a rebellion. So remember the baby emperor who we talked about a while ago, Five Ivan the, the six. six? Yeah, he's always at the back of people's minds as a possibility when things are bad. If If you're tired of the current ruler, there's always this baby in prison who is now, of course, a grown man.
2: And there's only one real attempt to rescue him, though. Which we talked about in the last podcast. And we ended it saying that some believed Lieutenant Mirovich really was trying to help Ivan the Sixth escape, while others believed he was just a pawn of Catherine's, according to the biography I keep referring to. It was the real thing. And no one knew what Ivan was like after all of these years in solitary confinement, if he was absolutely an idiot, like the Earl of Buckingham speculated in a letter, from lack of human contact, or if he was a perfectly normal man capable of rule. Mirovich apparently believed in the latter. And as we know, Ivan was killed in this attempt. And when she heard, Catherine wrote... I have read with great amazement your reports and all the marvels which have taken place at Schlüsselberg. The divine guidance is wonderful and inexhaustible.
0: Which that seems pretty cold, considering it's this poor prison man who's been held in captivity his whole life. Catherine initially wanted him to become a monk because that would be pretty convenient too. He wouldn't have any heirs.
2: So that would be great. (laughs)
0: Not quite as convenient as dead, though. Yeah, this worked out just as well but it's not just Ivan the 6 who people are interested in there are also conspiracies to put Catherine's own son Paul on the throne Paul is not a fan of his mother no she doesn't like him either he's very much like his probable father Peter the 3rd
2: and Catherine doesn't deal with these conspiracies lightly either Possible punishments included having your ears torn out or the skin stripped from your back before you were sent to Siberia. They all got sent to Siberia. She'd learned from her own coup. To be careful. Exactly. And then, of course, there is a third
0: possible claimant to the throne, and that's Peter the Third. But wait... We- he died in our last podcast, so he doesn't seem like a very valid candidate. That doesn't stop several people from claiming they are Peter the Third, which we
2: seem to have noticed in it's a not lot a of Russian scenes that we've read. <laughs> uh, there was one pretender in particular who threatened the Empress, and that brings us to the Pugachev Rebellion. In 1772, a Cossack named Emilian Pugachev announces that he is Peter the III. No one there out uh, way far out in the Urals, although they weren't called the Urals then. They were renamed after this to sort of disassociate <laughs> them. <Exactly. laughs> No one there had ever seen Peter, and the only thing they knew about Catherine was that she forced them to fight in these wars. They're not a fan? No, and some people just wanted to rebel. They knew perfectly well that he was not Peter the 3rd, but it was, you know, good a cause a convenient as any. Excuse. Some actually believed that he was the Tsar, but either way, he had followers and the ranks grew quickly. And he made the types of promises you can't really keep. It was reminding me when, you know, this high school sophomore running for class president and is always like, free Cokes from the vending machine if you elect me. Yeah, promises you can't keep in any way. But he said they could have everything they ever wanted, food, clothing, including their freedom. And he would depose Catherine. And his army steadily grew to 3,000 men. They began taking villages, raping women, mutilating the dead bodies of the officers they killed, and then they were ten thousand, and they sacked the city of Kazan and then Saratov in seventeen seventy four. And we should mention that Catherine hadn't interfered before this; she surely would have squashed it before it got to this extent. But it was difficult to it's get so messages. far away. Exactly, and so she again underestimated how just how big this rebellion was. And of course, her troops were out fighting the Russo-Turkish wars.
0: But fortunately for her. Uh Pugachev starts to lose some of the cities and Catherine sends men who are conveniently on the way home from the Russo-Turkish war. And Pugachev's own men betray him, too. So ultimately, he's lost. She said of him, I think that there has hardly been anyone so
2: destructive to the human race since Tamerlane. And yet she had a certain measure of respect for this illiterate, slightly crazy Cossack He was brought to Moscow in a cage and then beheaded. He was supposed to be quartered first, but Catherine, it seems, gave the secret okay to make it easier on him, uh, just behead him. And she gave amnesty to the people who participated in the revolt.
0: Except his family. (laughs) Yeah, they were stuck in prison. They're sent to prison. So Catherine gives amnesty to restore the peace, because after all, she has a great empire to rule. And... She focuses that greatness on her cities, making them these amazing, spectacular places. She's a great patron of the arts. The Hermitage Collection in St. Petersburg is huge. Yeah, it houses millions of pieces of art from porcelain to paintings. And she started with Rembrandts and Rubens
2: and even by Voltaire's library. She supported lots of painters and sculptors and writers. She even did some writing herself and transformed St. Petersburg from a city with wolves and bears wandering through the streets into one that could stand beside the great cities of Europe proudly. And to do this, she expands
0: trade. She builds that school for young ladies that she had always dreamed of and a lot of other schools. She builds a medical school, too, and establishes safe place. safe places for women to bring unwanted babies, no questions asked, uh,
2: even if an alarming number of them died. When they were there, yeah. And one of my favorite things, being a medical history lover, she brought vaccines to Russia, being one of the first to be inoculated against smallpox. And of course, once the royal family you know, goes it, under yeah. it and they turn out fine, Pe- it became more acceptable. It's to like our,
0: our guy Jon Snow from the ghost map who does ether for Queen Victoria while she's having her baby and suddenly it's okay. Exactly, Victoria setting examples.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not just wedding dresses. But there was a price to all of this glory. And if you remember the serfs she wanted to emancipate, things actually got much, much worse for them. As they were considered property and part of the lands that they were associated with, they were, of course, highly desired by nobles. And if she freed the serfs as she had planned, she would lose the nobles, the people who largely kept her in power. By the end of her reign, she would made the Ukrainian serfs as well as all of the Russian peasants. So it's not just things got worse for the serfs, there already were. They were many, many more yeah, after her Yeah, if rule. you're going to
0: have a great Russia, you've got to have this surf economy supporting it and happy nobles to back you up. So it does improve the economy and it builds the cities and the great buildings that she's dreamed of. And it brings all of these really impressive projects to life, but obviously at the expense of the common people. She also secularized the property of the clergy to get a lot of those serfs, putting more cracks in the Orthodox Church. And according to Britannica, the clergy had held a third of the land and serfs in Russia. So those are big taking. And just in case you get it confused with the last episode, her husband, Peter III, had already secularized
2: the monastic property, but not the clergy, not the clergy. So you might wonder how she got so far from where she began in her principles. After a certain point governing the people, Catherine realized or decided that the Enlightenment wouldn't work on the Russian people, that they were too backward, and she would have to say goodbye to some of her old ideas and concentrate instead on the glory of Russia instead of enlightening the people.
0: And the French Revolution, which comes late in her life, only serves to harden that conviction because, after all, look, this is where the Enlightenment got the French monarchy. She doesn't want to lose her head. The French radicals and the revolutionaries, all of that, she never thought that those ideas would come to
2: such violence against uh anointed monarch so even it was based on things she professed to believe in she repudiated it <laughs> she didn't like the results by that time these concerns preoccupied her later years of life and her own death came not long after that November 5th 1796 and despite other reports of her death this is how it went uh, she had gone to the bathroom she stayed too long and one of her servants came to check on her. She'd collapsed, so she was brought to her bedroom and died there the next night. She did not die in the bathroom, as people keep saying. So the cause of death is a stroke, and Paul ascends to the throne, even though
0: Catherine had hoped that her beloved grandson Alexander would take over. We already know Paul and Catherine don't get along very well. And Paul becomes emperor, immediately has Peter's remains brought up, and his coffin displayed next to Catherine
2: like there are these pious husband and wife. Just a huge slap in the face, a lot of disrespect toward his mother because of course she despised yeah. her husband and that makes them look like co-rulers when that wasn't the case at all. Oh, and
0: they're buried next to each other, um, at the cathedrals of St. Peter's and Paul. So Paul the first does not last very long because he is so much like his father, Peter the third. He's assassinated five years later and Alexander The beloved grandson finally
2: becomes emperor at age 23. So Catherine brought Europe to Russia and forever changed the balance of power in Europe. We can definitely say that about her. If you'd like to let us know your opinions, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And next up in our Catherine series is Catherine's lovers, none of which are equine, I would like to add. And we'll end with a quote from a letter she wrote to her lover Potemkin. The trouble is that my heart is loath to remain even one hour without love. That gives you an idea of where we're going. And that brings us to Listener Mail. So we received a card from Kate in Ohio and a really cool card.
0: I know, I have to say I have finally been quoted on a greeting card. Thank God from our from our art heist episode. Kate's card has a really cool watercolor of an empty frame and also my quote sometimes art is too hot to unload, but she's she's captioned it. So why do people put on fake mustaches and steal it? Which we just love this. It's really funny. And she wrote that I listen to you when I'm traveling but also in painting and drawing and put my favorite quotes and names like Thursday, October, Fletcher in my sketchbook. So
2: thanks for your card, Kate. We think it's really cool and we'll maybe take a picture for you guys and put it up on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Mist in History or join our Facebook fan page and see what we're up to. And please check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com
0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh?
0: Yep. You know what this playground could use?
1: A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait!